Good morning and welcome, Bethel family throughout Wilmington and beyond, and a special welcome to those who are visiting with us on the live stream this morning. If you were with us last week, you know, Pastor Tyler introduced the series on Colossians, appropriately titled Christ Over All, with a message from the first eight verses, the gospel and its fruit. One of Pastor Tyler's main points was that the gospel was indeed bearing fruit in the lives of the Colossian believers as evidenced by their faith and love, both motivated by the hope laid up for them in heaven. This morning, as we come to verses 9 through 14, we find one of the Apostle Paul's numerous prayers that are recorded for us in the New Testament. A prayer that is profoundly simple in its focus and purpose, yet intensely challenging as we reflect on what it teaches us about how we should pray and how we should live. Well, I've entitled my message this morning, Prayers from the, or Lessons from Paul's Prayer. I could have just as appropriately entitled it, building from last week, with the gospel and even more fruit. Because that, in fact, was the heart of the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers. My central thesis or point of encouragement to you this morning from our passage is that as God's people, we should be motivated and stirred by gratitude for God's evident work of salvation so that we fervently pray for further expansion of that very work in growing his children more and more into the likeness of his beloved son, our Savior Jesus. Intercessory prayer is a key factor in that process. For as rightly noted by New Testament scholar Don Carson, prayer is God's ordained means of conveying blessings to his people. If that is in fact the case, ought we not to be fervently interceding on behalf of our dear brothers and sisters? Yet, as also suggested by Carson in the introduction to his exposition on the prayers of the Apostle Paul, there is no more urgent need of the church in the Western world today, and sadly, no more neglected endeavor than intercessory prayer. He goes on to suggest that while most of us may know individuals who are remarkable prayer warriors, and we are blessed, we have some at Bethel. He says, is it not nevertheless true that by and large, we are better at organizing than agonizing, better at administering than interceding? Consider the words of the well-known theologian J.I. Packer when he writes, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man, or I would add the man or the woman, spiritually. 
in a way that nothing else is so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. The problem is, if you're like me, you struggle not only with giving prayer the proper priority in your schedule, but in the practical exercise of it, our minds wander. We're preoccupied with the stuff of life. And when we do pray, we can often sound like the youngster at Christmas with our wish list of what we would like to see God do. To be sure, intercessory prayer is a spiritual discipline to be developed and exercised. And in this endeavor, it is helpful to learn from positive role models, from listening to other godly men and women pray. So this morning, I invite you to join in as we learn together from the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the believers at Colossae. And in so doing, we might together learn to pray like Paul. You'll find the outline for this morning's message on the webpage below the live stream link. And the first point I would like us to draw from the Apostle Paul's prayer is that we learn lessons from the context of the prayer itself. And the first lesson I would like us to draw from the Apostle prayer's context of his prayer this morning is that our prayers should be stimulated by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the positive, evident fruits of gospel that are evidenced in the lives of others. Paul begins in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. The opening phrase, and so, conveys the idea of for this reason, which prompts us to ask, what reason? Why? Well, if we look at the preceding verses, which Pastor Tyler read in the scripture reading, we see that Paul's prayer on behalf of the Colossian believers was prompted by thanksgiving for the fact that they were the real deal. They had embraced the truth of the gospel and it was bearing fruit in their lives. As Pastor Tyler noted last week, we should be quick to see how God is at work in our brothers and sisters and to thank him for it. That gives glory to God and encourages our fellow believers. As we see here in verse 9, this thanksgiving should also stimulate intercessory prayer. Prayer for those already evidencing positive fruits of the gospel in their lives. Notice a similar theme echoed by the Apostle Paul in his prayer for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, in verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to 
give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. How often do we pray with as much urgency for those who are doing well spiritually as we do for those who are struggling? Paul did not stop at thanking God for the fruit of the gospel grace in the lives of these believers. But it was also the very impetus for his further intercession for them. No doubt, Paul interceded both for himself and for others that were confronting problems. In fact, in the context of of what is going on in the church at Colossae, we know that they were experiencing some challenges as well with the false teachers and what they were promoting. The point here is, though, that like Paul, we should be interceding. We should be encouraged to intercede when there are positive, evident signs of life and power and grace so that such signs such evidences will not only be preserved, but they would be further enriched and enhanced. New Testament commentator Dick Lucas well notes, it is just because he, that is Paul, can thank God for the fullness of what the Colossians have already received in truth and life, that he can pray that the young converts may increase daily in the Holy Spirit more and more. The first lesson we can learn from the context of Paul's prayer is that ongoing intercessory prayers should be stimulated by thankfulness for the positive fruits of gospel grace in others. We next see from the context of Paul's prayer that our prayers should be sustained with longevity. That is, tenacious, stubborn persistence. Again, in verse 9, we see that Paul writes, we have not ceased to pray for you asking, ongoing, regular, persevering asking, an assertion, interestingly, that Paul makes not only for the believers here at Colossae, but in his letters to the churches at Philippi, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. Paul's intercessory prayers for these, and no doubt other bodies of believers throughout Asia Minor and beyond, it was sustained, not a flash-in-the-pan sprint or but a lifelong marathon. This, of course, doesn't mean that Paul never did anything but pray, as if every waking moment was spent in intercession. What it does mean is that every time Paul prayed, which was no doubt often and intense and prolonged, he came to the throne of grace on behalf of the Colossian believers. In short, Paul is telling the Colossians that since hearing about them and the fruit of the gospel in their midst, 
He made it a point to intercede with God on their behalf in his disciplined, regular prayer times. As Sam Storms suggests, although Paul's prayer list must have grown daily as news of the success of the gospel reached him, he never failed to include the Colossians. I don't know what kind of prayer list the Apostle Paul might have kept, but when it comes to intercessory prayer, might I suggest to you that there's great practical value in keeping a list. Having a system, whether it's a ledger or whether it's some iPhone or iPad app like Prayer Time or Prayer Mate, whatever the system one chooses, however, we would all do well, as suggested by Don Carson, to never put people down except on our prayer lists. Recall the recent series from the Sermon on the Mount and the examples of prayer and the encouragement to pray. Ongoing, regular, asking, seeking, and knocking. Following Paul's example this morning, we are encouraged and challenged to be regular and persistent in our intercessory prayer on behalf of others. Oh, the power of sustained intercessory prayer. How is it that the hand of the omnipotent sovereign God is moved to act through the petitions of his children? New Testament professor and author Christopher Beetham provided a helpful reflection. He writes, In the mysterious wisdom of his providence, God has ordained that intercessory prayer be a means of growth in grace for disciples of Christ. We dare not neglect such a powerful tool as we seek the spiritual health and growth of the global church. Notice how Paul later describes the intercessory prayer ministry of Epaphras, his fellow Christian at Colossae, when in chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Then he says, always struggling, striving on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras, likewise, was persistent in prayer. Are there individuals that you have been praying for for a month Six months, a year, five years, ten years or more. The encouragement from our passage this morning is to pray persistently and trust God to work. 
The third point I would suggest that we can learn from the context of Paul's prayer is that our prayer should be expansive in scope. Is it not significant that Paul here sits in prison and he's writing to a group of believers he's never met and he tells them he prays for them regularly? When Paul wrote to the churches at Thessalonica and Ephesus and Philippi, it's perhaps not surprising that he told them that he faithfully and regularly prayed for them. Since in those instances, Paul was praying for Christians he personally knew. In fact, they were Christians in churches he himself had planted during one of his numerous missionary journeys as recorded in Acts. But now Paul is writing to a church. As far as we know, he's never visited. Again, the point is not that we don't pray for our immediate and inner circle, our family, our close friends, and certainly those within our church. In fact, they should be foremost in our intercessory prayer. But if that is the extent of our prayer list, then perhaps we need to take a lesson from the Apostle Paul and expand the horizon of those for whom we intercede. That is, we should not be too parochial in our prayer, but enlarge our horizons and intercede for believers in other parts of the world. In fact, there are a number of excellent resources for helping in that endeavor to learn of the needs of believers worldwide. Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, Wycliffe Translators, and on and on, there are many others. Moreover, we can take our first cue from the Apostle Paul right here in our text. Recall that while he had not personally met the Colossian believers, he nonetheless had a connection connection to them through Epaphras. Consider the extent, by extension, the Epaphrases that we have and know from Bethel. With our brothers and sisters at the other one for Wilmington churches. Through Colleen Kasky, consider those leaders and students involved in Bible studies at UD and Bucknell, other colleges throughout the East Coast. Through Brother Dwight, consider those students he had in his Isaiah class this summer and the schools throughout Africa that are impacted by Actea. Through Don and Sue Marshall in France, consider those individuals they're seeking to reach and disciple through their coffeehouse ministry. Through the ministry of Door of Hope, as was announced this morning, consider the young women who are ministered to both their physical and spiritual needs. And the list can be multiplied over and over. While we can't intercede in specific ways for everyone, we can and should be praying with an expanded scope or wide perspective of God's ongoing work. Well, not only do we learn lessons from 
the context of Paul's prayer, we certainly learn lessons, two key lessons I would suggest from the content. If we look again with me at verse 9, Paul says, And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's striking indeed. There's a singular focus to Paul's prayer that these Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's it. No more, no less. To simply be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Paul's prayer of intercession was focused on what God would do in the hearts of the Colossian believers. While Paul no doubt intended that the instruction and the encouragement from his letter would positively influence the Colossian believers, he also understood that as has been rightly asserted by one author, the best way to influence people for God is to intercede with God for people. James Packer states it this way, the aim of prayer is not to force God's hand or make him do our will against his own, but to deepen our knowledge of him and our fellowship with him through contemplating his glory, confessing our dependence and need, and consequently embracing his goals. I suspect that is what Lloyd John Ogilvie, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, also meant when he asserted that intercession is not so much placing our burdens or our desires on God's heart, but God putting his burdens, his desires, his will on our heart. At this point, it's important to note or interject a qualification. This does not mean we should never pray asking for other things. There are countless other material and spiritual things about which we ought to intercede or pray. After all, the Lord taught his disciples to pray for daily provision. Certainly in the midst of a global pandemic that has already claimed over 300,000 lives worldwide, there is a need for prayer. With relatives of church members having been lost to COVID-19, there is a need for prayer. For those who are frontline workers and medical professionals, for those who have lost their jobs, there's a need for prayer. In fact, I would want to assert this morning that it is perhaps especially in the context of all these events that we as God's children need to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that we might live and respond appropriately. Indeed, as we reflect upon Paul's prayer here in Colossians 1, we would do well to consider what was foremost on his heart 
for this body of believers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That is for them to have a deep and intimate knowledge of God, not merely cognitive, a deep and intimate knowledge of God and what he desires of his children. What the Colossian believers needed was in fact exactly what you and I need today in our walk of faith, namely, to be filled by God with a knowledge of his will, which Paul proceeds to tell us takes place by all spirit-imparted knowledge and all spirit-imparted understanding. This the Lord provides so that we may come to discern and do his will. To be sure, if the Colossians were going to stay true to the gospel and resist the infiltration of the false teachings, and Paul was confident they would, that they would need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Interestingly, the word that Paul uses here for knowledge is actually a compound form of the word for knowledge used elsewhere. Likely selected by Paul to remind the Colossian believers and to remind us that they do not need the false sources of so-called knowledge being promoted by false teachers obtained through some special initiation. What they needed and what we need today is to be filled with all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit of God gives to those who are in Christ. Note this recurring theme in Paul's prayers. For as he prays for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1.17, he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, of knowledge of him. And for the Philippians, he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As summarized by Don Carson, what Paul is here praying for is that these believers would be filled with the knowledge or perception of God's will, which consists of all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Moreover, as becomes evident in what follows in Paul's prayer, knowledge of God's will is never merely cognitive but is meant to inform and impact our conduct and character. Knowledge of God's will consists of wisdom, so often tied in the scriptures to knowing how to live, and understanding of all kinds, provided by the Spirit himself. Pastor Sam Storms states it as follows. In other words, to know God's will is not only a matter of understanding what is pleasing to him, 
but also consists of experiential wisdom and knowledge of how to apply God's desires to the concrete realities and crises and decisions of everyday life. Which of us doesn't need that? J.B. Phillips captures this idea well in his rendering of verse 10. We are asking God that you may see things as it were from his, that is from God's point of view, by being given spiritual insight and understanding. Commenting on this combination of spiritual wisdom and understanding, Doug Moo writes, the combination thus suggests the ability to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. He goes on to write, of course, as the Old Testament contexts make clear, that is, context in which wisdom or insight and understanding occur together, this truth comes only from God. A claim that Paul elaborates on later in chapter 2, verse 3, in a Christological sense, where he says, in Christ, that is, in Christ alone, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For those who are in Christ, we have access through intercessory prayer, both for ourselves and others, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding to apply it in the circumstances of life. This was the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Colossians. If the petitions of our prayer life are only of requests for good health, recovery from illness, safety on the road, or a good job, all of which are important and we should pray about. But if they are the essence of our prayer list, is not the center of our praying far removed from the center of the Apostle Paul's? If so, we, I, may be in need of reorienting our prayer priorities. We would do well to learn from the content of the Apostle Paul's prayer. Not only do we see from the content Paul's prayer for filling of knowledge, given that that is the singular point of his prayer, we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. It begs the question, but why? To what end? We find the answer in verse 10. So that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We see from the singular focus of Paul's prayer for a knowledge of God, a singular purpose, a worthy walk. Here the Apostle Paul reminds us that the intended purpose of this prayer is that we might live lives that are worthy of the Lord, that is, lives that are fully pleasing to Him in the context that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master and King. 
Wow, what an astonishing statement, the weight of which is hard to grasp. Especially written in a cultural context of shame and honor in which children would cringe at the thought of doing anything to dishonor their parents. Interestingly, Paul makes similar assertions elsewhere. To the church at Ephesus, he writes, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To the church at Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then to the church at Thessalonica, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The point is this, as summarized in the ESV study, study Bible footnote, is that while we as Christians, and we praise God for this, we're completely justified and declared righteous in Christ from the very moment of initial saving faith. We're not fully sanctified. We're not home yet. And therefore, we can do things that are either please or displease the Lord every day. The focus of Paul's prayer is that as Christians are increasingly experiencing the Holy Spirit sanctifying work, as they're increasingly filled with a knowledge of God and His will, they will increasingly live lives that are pleasing to the Master. Dick, is, Dick Lucas states it well. He says, The necessity of such understanding for the Colossian Christians is evident when we see the standard of living that is expected of them as described in verse 10, to which he rightly notes that the goal for which Paul prays a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, is not for a select few, but for every single believer. Then he makes this assertion. He says, there's no conceivable way for anyone to reach verse 10 except through verse 9. So all the Christians, without exception, will need all God's wisdom without diminution or reduction. Or as rightly noted by D.A. Carson, transparently, we cannot begin to be utterly pleasing to Jesus unless God fills us with the knowledge of his will. Conversely, the knowledge of his will is not an end in itself but has as its goal such Christian maturity that our deepest desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. A life that is pleasing to him in everything. For a Christian, there can be no greater purpose in all of life. Recall with me the Old Testament example of Enoch. 
one of only a few men in Scripture who never experienced death. We're told in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Then in Hebrews 11, 5, we read that before he was translated, his testimony was simply that, referring to Enoch, he pleased God. Wow, what a testimony. A similar passion is expressed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 when he states that whether we are at home in the body or away from it, we make it our goal to please him. I like the way Alistair Begg puts it in his book, Made for His Pleasure, when he summarizes what this should look like in the life of a Christian. He writes, All of our desires, decisions, aspirations, and affections should be governed by our prior determination to please God. This is distinct from a superficial interest in religious things that is nothing more than a thinly guised form of self-preoccupation. Our belief should be in a God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is externally and objectively true, not in the form of a God that exists to please us. We must ask ourselves, who am I trying to please? The worker endeavors to please his boss. The child, his parents. The pupil, his teacher. But for the believer, underpinning that must be a heartfelt commitment to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, we make it our goal to please him. As we pray for others to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, so as to increasingly please the Lord in all they do, may we be challenged to likewise pray for ourselves. And in so doing, as suggested by Don Carson, we will have to align ourselves with Paul's motives, namely, so that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, in thought, word, deed, in action, and reaction. I must be asking myself, what would Jesus have me do? What is speech or conduct worthy of him? What sort of speech or conduct in this context should I avoid simply because it would shame him? What would please him the most? Rightly pursued, these simple questions would transform how we work, what we do with our leisure time, how we talk with our spouses and children, what responsibilities we take on in our churches, what we read, what we watch on television, how we treat our neighbors, what we do with our money. Such are the motives of a life that is worthy of the Lord, one that is well-pleasing to him.
not only, not only do we learn lessons of prayer from the context of Paul's prayer and the content, but suggest to you a number of lessons we can draw from the accompanying characteristics. That is, characteristics that accompany a life pleasing to the Lord. In the passage, as Pastor Tyler read in our text before us, we read that a life that is fully pleasing to him, that is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In these verses, Paul paints for us a picture of what a worthy walk looks like. That is, what are the accompanying characteristics of a walk that is fully pleasing to the Lord? Paul delineates four in the form of four participles. This list is, of course, not meant to be exhaustive, but intended to typify those characteristics that are embodied in a believer who is filled with a knowledge of God's will so that they're walking in a manner pleasing of the Lord. Let us briefly consider each. Verse 10, fruitfulness in action bearing fruit in every good work. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one is saved apart from the sovereign grace of God in Christ. You and I bring nothing to the table but our sin. All our best efforts fell infinitely short of the glory of God and his righteousness. But when God gloriously opens our eyes and shines the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our hearts and saves us by grace, he does so for the express purpose stated in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, we were created to bear fruit in every good work. That is the irreducible purpose of God's free grace in our lives. Real deal Christians bear fruit through good works. Or has been rightly said, good works are the fruit of genuine salvation, not the root. Indeed, Paul tells us in Titus 2.14 that the very reason Jesus gave himself for us was to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love the closing words of the Apostle Paul in that same letter to Titus. Verse, chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Of course, the kind of good works and the degree of fruitfulness will vary a great deal from believer to believer. Moreover, in a world of a mandated self-quarantine and social distancing, those good works may take a variety of forms, perhaps a card or a phone call to a struggling brother or sister, or mowing the lawn of a needy neighbor, picking up groceries for shut-ins. The list goes on and on. The point is an essential evidence of bearing fruit or being filled with the knowledge of God's will is a life characterized by good works. Secondly, in addition, a life that is pleasing to the Lord is one marked by growth in the knowledge of God. Notice that it appears we've come full circle, yet it's not a vicious circle, but a beautiful spiral. As we pray for others to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and they are day-to-day empowered by His Spirit, both with the desire and the enablement to live lives pleasing to the Lord, the result is more growth in knowledge and obedience. The result is a yet deeper knowledge of God and who He is. Again, not merely cognitive information, but a growing heart-level understanding of the person and character and beauty of God and how He wants us to live in a way that brings him honor and glory. To increase in the knowledge of God is to grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. A knowledge that is inseparably linked to our behavior as Christians. Don Carson puts it this way. To learn something of God's will and to use such a knowledge to live a life worthy of the master and utterly pleasing to him is to engage in the business of obedience. But as you get busy in the business of obedience, you get to know God better by obedience that is, of course, spirit-empowered. That, in turn, impels you to more obedience, which, in turn, opens up new vistas in the knowledge of God and his will. Of course, as your knowledge of God and his will improves, you're driven to greater obedience. Such obedience is one point of access to greater knowledge of God. And on and on. So Christians grow in the knowledge of God. As noted by another New Testament scholar, verses 9 and 10 taken together form a miniature picture of Christian life and growth. Paul prays that we may increase in the knowledge of God's will with the result that the Colossians will live as God wants them to and so increase in the knowledge of God. That is, understanding fuels holiness and holiness deepens understanding. Is not that how we should pray and how we should live? Thirdly, moving on quickly, in addition to evidencing fruit-filled knowledge, Paul 
next reminds us that a life that is fully pleasing to God is one characterized by divine empowerment. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Note Paul says here, being strengthened for the power comes from God himself. I don't know the origin of the quote, but whoever said, whatever God requires that he provides may have well had this verse in mind. Moreover, the present tense form of the verb signifies this divine empowerment is not a one-time installment, but is ongoing. In addition, notice how Paul piles up the terms here for power, describing this work of divine enablement. In fact, as suggested by Sam Storms, since the word translated might is virtually synonymous with power, we might render this verse, may you be empowered with all power according to his majestic power. To which he adds, wow, God doesn't do anything second class. At this point, we may be inclined to say, who doesn't win in on that? After all, there are battles to fight, mountains to climb, diseases to cure, churches to plant. Yet, notice the focus of this divine enablement. This power unleashed through the gospel, described elsewhere by Paul as the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, is now continually at work in God's children to give them great endurance and patience. Because of God's mighty empowerment, Paul expected that these Colossian believers would persevere in the faith, not falling prey to the false teachers and the associated heresy that apparently threatened the church. May I suggest that's the same power we need for great endurance and patience in the midst of a pandemic that has caused upheaval virtually every facet of life What mom, who's been at home for the last two months with the children they love dearly, but what mom doesn't need great endurance and patience? Lastly, Paul concludes by once again taking us full circle. We started in verse 9 with Paul expressing how his prayer for the Colossian believers was stimulated by gratitude for the evident fruit of the gospel in their midst. And now he ends with a reminder that their lives and ours, if they're to be fully pleasing to the Lord, are to be characterized by glad-hearted gratitude. What I like to call gospel-informed glad-hearted gratitude. Paul says, end of verse 11 into 12, with joy giving thanks to the Father. Let there be no mistake, a worthy life is one characterized by glad-hearted gratitude to God the Father for the work of redemption accomplished through the substitutionary, all-sufficient sacrifice of his Son on our behalf. Yes, Life involves pain and suffering that require divine enablement for endurance and patience. 
as we live in a broken and sin-cursed world and our bodies have yet to be fully delivered and made new as they will in the new creation and at the resurrection. Yet even in the midst of trial and suffering, the more we reflect on the depths and the riches of the gospel and all that it signifies, there can be no other response than glad-hearted gratitude. That is gratitude for the powerful, grace-filled, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. As noted by several commentators, verses 12 through 14 climax Paul's prayer as he enumerates three glorious reasons for joyful, glad-hearted gratitude. Well, time does not permit unpacking each of these individual this morning. Suffice it to say that they are each rooted in the glorious gospel and its impact in our lives. For the Colossian believers and all who have experienced the saving grace of God in Christ. A life that is pleasing to the Lord is one with gospel-informed, glad-hearted gratitude for, look at what Paul says, He, that is, God has qualified us. He, God has delivered us and translated us. He, or that is, in Him, Christ, we have, we have present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't stir your soul in a glad-hearted gratitude. I don't know what will. Inheritance, deliverance, redemption, all, by the way, rooted in Old Testament language and imagery, each of which is significant. Moreover, note there's a striking parallel between Paul's language here in Colossians 1 with the testimony before he gives before King Agrippa as he gives an account of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. Jesus, he said, was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. Here in Colossians 12, 1, 12 to 14, in this final word of glad-hearted gratitude, the apostle echoes the very same gospel truths expressed by Jesus in Paul's commissioning as recorded in Acts 26. As noted by Don Carson, to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus is to overflow with joyful thanksgiving in light of the salvation we have received at his hand. If we have been transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son beloved by God, our only appropriate response is joyful gratitude. I would be amiss to end this morning by not saying if you are 
listening to this message today and you have never experienced that which Paul praises God for here in these verses. That is, you've never been qualified in Christ. You've never been delivered from darkness. You've never been redeemed and had your sins forgiven. You can do that. You can experience that today by turning to the Lord Jesus, seeing him as your only hope, your sin-bearing substitute, and trusting him by faith. If you have any questions, anything you would like to discuss in that regard, please contact the church office. I'd be thrilled, be glad, as would any of the other elders, to talk with you. As we conclude, to say Paul's prayer, as should ours, starts and ends with joyful gratitude for the saving work of Christ and all that it means. What a model prayer to follow as we intercede for others within the Bethel family, within our broader circle of sisters and churches in Wilmington and the work of God around the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, our closing prayer is simply this. As we praise you for the evidences of gospel grace and fruit in our midst, we pray that you would increasingly fill and empower your children to live lives that are fully pleasing to you and which reflect your infinite worth. For we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.